welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind on the Progressive Radio Network. Continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness, I've been out of a range of the radiophonic device regime for a couple of weeks. I went up to uh, northeastern Oregon to catch the eclipse as part of the Eclipse Festival put on by Symbiosis and a crew of uh, transformative festival uh, groups from around the world. Uh, It was a wonderful time. It reminded me of some of the better aspects of old school Burning Man. Uh, Saw some great music and um, had a good old freaky hippie time. Uh, The eclipse was remarkable. Um, I thought the most interesting thing that I could add to uh, the the sort of discussion around it uh, is just the wonder of kind of watching what happens spontaneously when you see something that you've never seen before. And I had kind of actually gone out of my way to to ignore uh, reading about the eclipse and what it would look like and the corona and all that kind of stuff. I didn't really have a very good idea of what it would look like, partly just to maximize the novelty. I mean, you get it, you get on in years and, um, you know, I'm half a half a century old now. Uh, You know, you don't, see as much novel stuff as you used to. So it's really quite an opportunity uh, not only to experience something new, but to watch what happens to yourself or what happens to your emotions in particular. Um, You know, I became a sort of gleeful child uh, uh, yelling profanities in a most exuberant manner. My friend said it was like looking at, you know, a kid getting his like favorite Christmas present ever when he's eight years old. And then like my wife, she's started kind of weeping and this sort of sense of awe and wonder and fragility. And I mean, it was, it was just really extraordinary to be around a lot, all these people kind of each experiencing their own, uh, kind of remarkable, uh, emotional ex- exaltation at this extraordinary cosmic event, which though, of course they happen periodically and regularly, you know, forever, uh, nonetheless cannot help but strike, a certain kind of resonant chord as if some extra significance is in the picture, particularly uh, in this most broken nation these days, just looking at the track of the eclipse from the West Coast uh, to the South uh, and right across the the heart of the country, you're like, wow, it's almost as if, uh, you know, something in America is eclipsed or possibly uh, hopefully becoming reborn. Um, uh, and this experience was followed by a, a really delightful, spontaneous hippie hug, which was different than any other hippie hug I had, I had done. It was just sort of random people in this field were all watching it. And then we, we did a sort of cinnamon roll where we, we, we stood in a line and then like one side of the li- holding hands, one side of the line kind of rolled together. Uh, and it was very charming and blissfully short and uh, nobody owned. Uh, it was just kind of uh, playful and, and very childlike. And it was a wonderful way uh, to celebrate this cosmic event. Um, but speaking of cosmic events, uh, things in the sky, uh, and positive varieties of hippie hugs and other, uh, pagan falderall, uh, I, I'm happy that this week we have as our guest Maja Dau, and of course, long-term listeners of Expanding Mind will know that 
Uh, Maja was my co-host uh, for many years. We started the podcast in uh, early 2010, and when I uh, began it, I, I knew I'd, I at that time I didn't want to go on uh, just you know uh, just, just interview guests a, as one person. I really wanted to team up with Maja, someone I'd met a number of years uh, before, uh, doing research on uh, mysticism in Los Angeles, and uh, we really hit it off and uh, had a, had a great time. Uh, doing the show together for many years, so I thought it'd be fun to uh, bring her back on and and have a conversation, get get caught up, uh, as well as to uh, talk about her new uh, book that's coming out. Uh, she's already written a book uh, called "The Secret Source: The Law of Attraction and Its Hermetic Influence Through the Ages," which was co-written with uh, Adam Parfrey, but I, I suspect Maja did the lion's share. Uh, and her new book is uh, is, is a tarot deck. Uh, she's a, a wonderful artist as well, and she's uh, putting out a, a collection of uh, the major arcana images that she has created. And I'm very excited about that for her. And in fact, I have some some piece of Maja art waiting for me uh, down there in uh, Los Angeles. Next time I go through, I'll uh, I'll pick it up. Looking forward to finding a place for it in my crowded uh, apartment here in San Francisco. Uh, so with no further ado, uh, Maja, uh, welcome back to Expanding Mind. Hi! <laughs> it's so <laughs> nice to be back on the show. How's it going, Eric? It's going well. You know, it's I'm I'm it's I the the only thing I don't like about taking vacations is it takes me forever to get back into gear. You know, I'm a, a yes. as a free as a freelancer. Um, you know, I'm kind of my own taskmaster, and I'm I'm not the most productive person in the planet, but I'm, I'm reasonably solid. But when I go away, I have this wonderful feeling of expanse and novelty and relaxation and new stimulation. But when I get back, it always takes me like a week. I, I you know, I'm not meditating. I have to drag myself to yoga. I have to drag myself <laughs> to get work done. It just, it's, it's just the part of the cycle that I dislike the least. But yesterday I finally felt kind of lift off and, and I'm kind of cruising now again into, uh, you know the, the busy productive life but uh it's it's been a it's been a great uh, last last month and I, I know the eclipse is a big deal for you because it it signified as i learned from uh from your ritualdiary.com website a, a major change in the majadau persona avatar <laughs> in the yes. world the loss of the white witch uh, your this great brand that you'd somehow managed to accumulate over the years i thought you'd never go and you said Look, let's get rid of it. We're going to do something new. So I, I'm curious about that. What, why, uh, why, uh, why, why did you give up the White Witch moniker? And um, what was it? Uh, what you do on a, on the eclipse to uh, bring on a new uh, avatar identity? Yes, it's you know eclipses. A lot of people know um, basically are harbingers of change or transformation. Like a lot of the eclipse followers. There's a lot of data out there that talks about how they're alchemically very symbolic for things kind of coming together. But I know a lot of people, ever since the blood moon eclipses, really in 2014, have seen the shifts that they bring. So symbolically, with an eclipse, something will be removed from you, and then something will be replaced and there's a lot of literature that talks about if you're willing to make a sacrifice 
the thing won't be removed and you can kind of do it joyously instead of through suffering, right? But <laughs> change is, as we know, one of the only constants here in this great big cosmos. So when you're willing to make changes and kind of let things go and have ego deaths and offer your your identifiers up, you can you can kind of live a more transformational life. And a lot of, I feel like the energy that came up for a lot of people with this eclipse was about all of these things we use as identifiers to keep ourselves separate from each other, right? So for me, I was really watching a lot of the community reacting to Charlottesville and what happened with all the racism stuff and how we kind of hold on to these ego identifiers um, to make ourselves different from other people. Not to be, you know, disrespectful of real culture, like real things that make each other different, but in terms of separators that make um, other people not human, right? Or remove people's humanity through signifiers. So I really felt like just the whole white and black thing and trying to make um, distinctions of good and evil on those levels, it's really a good time to try to stop some of those distinctions while keeping the differences. So for me, I did it symbolically, not just for myself to kind of make a transformation and drop an ego identifier that I had lived with for a long, long time uh, in order to just make a change and transform, but also for people of color who are just suffering terribly under a lot of these misidentifiers of kind of good and evil on that basic dualistic level, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, the, obviously the, the word white has a lot of uh, a lot of heavy, heavy baggage these these days. And even though, you know, I, I always sort of found the, the white witch rather charming because, you know, within uh, occult or uh, or esoteric thinking, you know, the idea of the white witch has a sort of, uh, you know, almost um, storybook charm to it yes. of course it sits on top of this whole other set of uh of values that's you know all bound up in 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 these issues that we're talking about in terms of race and uh, associations cultural associations a whole legacy of, of dualism so yes. but, but I, i'm kind of curious you know you're also uh you know in addition to being a witch and an angelino and in in los angeles uh the uh, one's personal brand is is taken perhaps more importantly than one's you know physical health or uh <laughs> you know or pocketbook or anything. So, uh, so I'm, I, I, it was, I mean, I must say, but it was just to some sense, it was a, sac a sacrifice. It wasn't like a trivial thing to, uh, uh, to change, you know, the, the, the phrase that had been associated with you and in, in articles about you and your astrology work and your healing work and your, you know, your, your, uh, creative, your very creative form of esotericism. So, um, it must've still been, uh, meant something to, to leave that, let that one go. Yeah, it was, it felt really good. Like you said, it was very, uh, like how you experienced the eclipse. It was very kind of this liberating feeling of just removing something of that, you know? But I had, I mean, I had gotten letters and emails from people in the community, like within my community, it's really diverse. And I, uh, you know, at Los Angeles is a super diverse city and I love it. And I want to honor all the diversity in it and certainly um, be part of that and honor the people. And I got feedback from so many people after I made it that said, like, thank you for doing this and were appreciative of just even the symbolic gesture of it. So I felt really good afterwards 
And it was sort of like, you know, people identify you with those things. And as a woman, right, like for me too, because of how I look, right, that benefits me through doing my work because people are like, oh, she looks nice or whatever, (laughs) you know, like people will identify you based Mm. on all. Hello? We seem to have lost Marja temporarily. She uh, she disappeared. Uh, we'll uh, bring her back as uh, as soon as we can. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about her, uh, what she, what she's been up to in in Los Angeles, and uh, in terms of uh, you know adding a new face to uh, uh, the sort of esoteric occult world. You know, it's there. There's sort of so many. Um, how would you say, kind of, uh, oh, you back there? there? Did it get dropped? Yeah, you got, you oh, got, yeah. uh, you, there was a vibrating phone that somehow, it, I heard the vibration of the phone and then it took away the signal somehow. Oh, poopy, sorry. <laughs> no problem. I was just saying how uh, one of the things I, I really like ab- ab- about you and how you show up in the world is that there's just so many, uh, you know, kind of uh, boring uh, associations with, um, the way uh, witches or esoteric practitioners look, you know, like we have yes. all these associations. And it's like it's the same kind of cliches. It's like a mixture of of the 60s and Hollywood movies. And and so, uh, you know, people who are into the into esoteric have to work really hard to try to freshen it up and make it more kind of contemporary. But a lot of those moves, in my mind, also I don't seem to always work so well. Uh, and I've just always enjoyed the way that you brought a, a, a freshness to the role while still being willing to kind of step into the part in, in media just by being like, yes, I'm a witch. Yes, I'm an yes. A, a <laughs> practitioner. Yes, I do astrology. You know, like all of these kind of old older things but you don't look like a gypsy you know you have your your own your own <laughs> style um and it's also really evident in your artwork and in this tarot deck that you're putting out i mean this is not your average kind of heavily uh you know symbolically dense uh cards with borders and sort of traditional imagery that draws from fantasy literature and from from uh, occult systems it's it's much fresher um singular it's very much your own particular style there's a lightness to it even though the images themselves are are very compelling uh and sometimes a a a little spooky uh but there's still a lightness to your style i mean it's hard of course on the radio to describe uh your your work but if you could talk a little bit about um uh, the uh, just the way your process, your your art process is to describe these these images, the sort of gold on black, and then just talk a little bit about what, you know what you wanted to bring to uh, to making your own your own tarot deck. Yeah, totally. It started um, the images really started emerging when I would do meditation. So. I do a meditative practice uh, pretty rigorously. Like I, re- I meditate a good like four hours a day. Usually I'll try to do like two hours in the morning and then two hours in the evening. And I'll since I started doing it, I mean, I get up usually before dawn 
automatically. I don't even try. I'll usually, it's kind of annoying because no matter what, I get up at like five in the morning now after starting this practice, which I, I understand happens to a lot of people. Once they start meditating, they get on this kind of schedule, you know, where you sync up with rising before the dawn. And so I'd go into these Nagong meditations, uh, which I learned from my teacher, Kelvin DeWolf. And they're kind of similar to a lot of Taoist uh, ancient techniques that they would do. If you look up Nagong on Wikipedia, they'll give a pretty good um, description of them. And essentially, the images would kind of emerge out of the darkness. Like there would be, from my mind's eye, I would see just all this dark and these sort of rays of light would shoot out from it and then form these uh, formations. So the, the images on the card really look like these apparitions that would kind of come forward while I'd be meditating. And it would really look like that. And it was freaky because I had this synchronicity while I was doing them. There was all this info that came out showing how dark matter looked like I don't know if you saw any of those articles but they were showing like the earth with the dark matter shooting out, and it looked like exactly like some of my drawings basically with these rays these kind of like golden rays shooting out of it and I, I mean it just kind of looked that way when I would concentrate and then they'd come out so essentially my process I would just think about the cards and then the images would appear while I would be doing the meditations. And that's how I sort of got the writing for each of the cards as well, talking about what each of them symbolized. It would just kind of come forward. So I tried to really just be receptive. Of course, I already have, you know, I've been working with tarot for, I don't even know, like 20 years or something. So I have this background and it's not like it came out of nothing. So I guess... Um, some people might say, like, it didn't come out of nowhere. Maybe it just kind of emerged from my subconscious while I was meditating would be my best guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's one of the I mean, I think that's true about not just occult or esoteric practices, but music and other things is that, you know, you can't just it, it's a very rare person who can from the get go in, just into it or spontaneously respond to these practices with real depth, right. uh, usually what happens is we we learn and we kind of absorb systems. We sort of understand how they work as we, even if we don't necessarily believe that they re reflect something, you know, uh, physically real in the universe. We just recognize that there are these symbol systems that have a lot of richness to them. And we kind of apprentice ourselves to the systems. And yes. then at a certain point, you kind of let it go. It's like with yoga, you know, it's funny, like, you know, yoga, it's like you people do yoga and then they have their teachers and they have their teachers. And then at some point they're like, oh, shoot, if I'm going to be, a, if I'm going to teach, I got to come up with my own thing. So you, there's this sort of <laughs> tension, but, but you still have to do it in the name of a tradition. You can't just say, oh, I made all these moves up. You got to go, oh, this is an ancient tradition. But at the same time, you have to distinguish yourself from the person who's, you know, 20 years older than you that you started to learn from. And it's like a kind yeah. of basic uh, tension in, in, in all of these things. But I want to talk a little bit about the images. I'm, I'm now realizing partly why I find them so striking uh, when I just first started seeing them and seeing them on, on, on your walls uh, when, when I'd visit is that they, they are very much like hypnagogic images that that space you know meditation one of the places it can take you is to that borderland between sleeping and and waking yes. and 
as people, you know, as you get more familiar with that particular borderland, which is not the dream world of, of REM sleep, but the, the dream world of hypnagogy, of moving from awake to sleep and then, you know, sleep to awake, that, that kind of threshold, is that there's a very p- particular and peculiar quality of the images that arise, that can arise in that space. Um, and they're very striking, and it's not like other kind of imagery. And it's surprising how little artists really have played with that. But one yeah. occultist and artist who's really who's done a lot of that, and that now I realize reminds me something of your images, is uh, Austin Osmond Spare, who's, of course, this great 20th century British uh, magician, uh, very important to chaos magic, uh, a sort of, you know, in some ways as, as influential as Crowley, at least on on maybe not quite, but but at least on contemporary occult practice. But he was also an extraordinary artist. I mean, recognized at the time as a great artist. But some of his images are very hypnagogic, and they have that sense of like those sort of slightly creepy faces kind of coming out of the blackness of of deep space. Uh, you know, uh, hypnagogia. These sort of very they're very lightly drawn, but at the same time they're extremely potent and. Just the way that your images work with the black background and these kind of gold rays that are that are emerging and sometimes very delicately drawn with not that many lines, but yet there's a very strong sense of of character or persona or and a kind of being kind of kind of coming through. So that makes sense that you're you've been able to tap into your own. Well, uh, it's imagery. funny that you mentioned the hypnagogia, and I know like you and and Fur, you're beautiful wife (laughs) do all the dream work stuff you guys play around with that too that like falling asleep and waking up place and a lot of the surrealists too would use those techniques of playing with that space in between like dolly talks a lot about how he would specifically try to record things he would get in that place and for me like with the kelvin work we actually do sleep deprivation stuff where um, for the past five years i've been doing on the solstice where we fast and don't sleep for four days so you when you take away the the sleeping you feel that place of hypnagogia that you're really talking about very sharply and you can really articulate it and for me i had these experiences where you know, you're so tired after you stay up for like, after about three days, you're like, okay, this is getting a little rough. And you, I would feel the sleep, like trying to get me almost like a fist, like trying to reach at me and pull me down. And you can really feel that delicate little spot between like, now I'm awake and now I'm asleep. And you could, it was almost like this line that you can feel when you when you abstain from it you know so that's a real place that you're talking about and it, it's really there yeah it's true i mean one of the things that that uh that jennifer my my wife talks about a lot is that most people you know they're very interested in dreams and 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 accessing that realm and a lot of people get obsessed with lucid dreaming as if that's the sort of measure of great dreaming and they people kind of skip over the space because if you don't sort of start to tune into it, it's very easy to just kind of barely notice it. It, it. You know, when people when they when they use EEG to measure, you know, the movement from waking to sleep, a lot of times people pass through hypnagogy very briefly. You know, t- ten seconds, yeah. thirty seconds, or whatever. But you can learn to you know open up that space. And I I think you're right that one way of doing that is is 
you know, staying awake. And then you start to become very aware as you get drawn in and like lurched in. There's, you know, and you're resisting in some sense. There's this kind of zone in between. I mean, Jennifer talks about, I think it's a great analogy is it's like the waking the waking world is the is the land and the deep dream and deep sleep is the is the ocean mm. and hypnagogia is like you're learning how to surf on that yeah, edge that's good. And, that's you so know to good. like stay you know you got to kind of stay awake a little bit you got to keep upright you can't just merge into it or you'll go to sleep but yeah. but you're also playing with it and kind of kind of resisting it and i, I that's something that have a lot of your images have that and they also have a they also have a mutant quality. Another aspect of hypnagogic imagery is that it's constantly changing. It's like constantly yes. fluctuating and feeding and unfolding and and splitting. Uh, and it's not necessarily narrative, although sometimes you can kind of track it. It's not like a our, our more vivid dreams that are have these narrative structures, but they're they're always shifting and changing. And so some of your images where there's you know, there's like transformative elements. It's like a face, but then one eye is starting to become the eye, like the left eye is becoming the right eye of another face or the side of a head is turning into a bird. They have that kind of transformative uh, in motion quality. So they don't seem like a lot of tarot images um, are very static. You know, they're yeah. very like hierarchical or iconic or they're just sort of like uh, or hieratic is really the word where they're just very still and like everything's balanced. Stoic, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But yours are much more, much more um, uh, fluid. And uh, I don't know, like what, what, how, what, what did it mean for you to do? I mean, in a way, like making your own tarot images is like one of the most classic things that occultists do. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of, of you know, hundreds of tarot decks just published professionally and then it's something that other people do on their own they make collages blah 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 and in fact some of the the most uh, significant decks in uh anglo-american history not so much the continent but anglo-american history the rider weight deck and the thoth deck were both done the, the artists for both of those were women so there's something black woman about the this weight. yeah yeah so there's something about this uh tarot image space so i'm 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 kind of curious like did you need to be somewhere in your own like life to take on doing the the major arcana or what called you to 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 sort of do that at, at this point i mean i really was you know as you know i'm a reader so i do reading so i work with tarot on really a daily basis and a lot of it that really inspired me was not just the tarot but i got to this place especially where in the work, because I do astrology and I Ching as well, and just going like multi-divination system. When you do like lots of different systems, you start to see that, oh, it's just all the same story. And like, I was teaching this class on divination. I was like, there's, you could, if you learn the archetypes, you know every divination form, essentially, right? So it doesn't, I learned to go kind of trans tarot, I guess, through going through all the different forms because you can see oh my god these are no matter what the language of divination you're using they're all the same archetypes and energies coming through that have these same kind of like identities so i through working with all the the different systems i wanted to really nail that archetype and it's 
its identity. And I feel like with the tarot, with the arcana, using the imagery and the pictures, it's kind of one of those ways where you don't have to use words and get into all this language to try to do it, but you can more, it's more feely, you know, you can get like the emotion from them. So it was really based on using not just tarot, but all the systems and then, you know, people's emotional experiences with them and also my own. So I wanted to really kind of like feel them, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. I mean, there's also like, uh, there's an element of them. Again, what I like about it, it's the same kind of thing I was saying about your sort of like this kind of avatar you've constructed as a modern, uh, you know, occult practitioner who makes her living doing readings and stuff like that is that you, there's a quality of it that's, you know, related to the hippie counterculture and mysticism and the occult tradition. But there's also an element that feels more like kind of like almost punk rock, like kind of scattershot, like kind of fr like something fresher like that. And I'm yeah. just wondering, like your own I mean, I know in your own experience, you kind of had a foot in both of those worlds growing up, both kind of a hippie sort of influence, but also something more more punk rock. But also it, I feel I, I sense uh, some influence from from comics and from independent comics and and, you know, not not superhero comics, but like more underground stuff, more contemporary, you know, independent things. So was part of that comic lore, comics lore part of your your influence as well as the uh, the oh, occult man. images? You you totally nailed it, Eric. You're so good. I one of the predominant influencers on my formative years was Charles Burns because the Black Hole comics were coming out at that time man have you seen the black have you read the Black Hole comics I have very much you should with that they're so great they're so perfectly keyed to exactly what we're talking about you should totally, describe, totally. Them describe them a little bit I mean for those of you listeners that haven't seen Charles Burns's work it's a lot of hypnagogia like Eric's talking about and he really looks at themes uh, involving, you know, psychedelics or subconscious or elements of the undertry and hybrids, right? And mutants are in the comic too. So, and his art is so like thick and meaty and black ink heavy. And just the, the images kind of come out of the blackness with, with his work as well. So I would say a hundred percent, he was a huge influence on my like aesthetics in terms of artwork for sure. Yeah, and even just the sensibility of the way in which uh, occult forces, whether we think about them as being patterns of the unconscious or as sort of mysterious patterns in the cosmos itself, uh, th that they come through his work even in these very gritty situations that are like, you know, it's kind of like the sleazy side of 1980s <laughs> high school life with sex and fear and and drugs and, you know, I think zones that you and I are both kind of familiar with to some degree growing <laughs> up when and where we did. Um, but there's this way in which the, the, the those mysteries get folded in and it there's a kind of ambiguity where you you can tell that on some level it's it's really just about emotions and fear and sex. But at another way, those things start to impact reality they start to fold and twist it into these kind of psychedelic resonances and one of the mm -hmm. things that he does um especially in the black hole 
better than almost anyone. In, and I don't understand why comics people don't use it more. There's some of it in, in Watchmen as well around the same time is where you use what what uh, like film critics call a graphic match, which is the mm-hmm. way that the same figure recurs in different contexts. So you see like the bug crawling into a hole, but it, it comes up in different ways. It's in the background over here, over here. It's, you know, it's on a poster and there's this kind of repetition of images. Uh, yes. Another, another example is that manga uh, Uzumaki, the spiral where this oh, totally. town gets taken over by the spiral and you start seeing the spirals everywhere and it's the same pattern. And there's something really powerful and psychedelic and archetypal about that when when you start recognizing how the same figure starts appearing in different guises throughout the whole kind of story. And it, it creates that sense of a, a kind of spooky, uncanny return that I think is really, yeah, really powerful. It's really like a tulpa almost, right? This aggregator that keeps like throughout the narrative peeking out. <laughs> it's like the, the underlier that keeps emerging out into all these different scenarios. It's so true. And that's really what the archetypes are though, right? Like they're just present and there and they're universal in, it's not like it takes an individual practitioner to identify them. You just kind of come into a relationship with them almost through seeing them show up everywhere. Yeah. Well, that's, what's great about, I mean, again, that comes up, comes back to for me to the way in which your your images and even hypnagogy itself have this very fluid almost ephemeral quality that's very light in one way but another way is very resonant and deep it's it's really different than i think that they're one of the the problems with the way that archetypes have kind of come to be uh, uh, come to exist in our cultural imagination and our spiritual imagination is that they're overly fixed and they're overly sort of um, how to say it like they're too personified it's like yeah. it's like the archetype yeah they're anthropomorphized they're they're turned into uh, very static like chunks Whereas I think it's much more fluid and it's much more in the process of the encounter uh, that we, we, we get it. It's less about the archetypal image and it's more about these kind of patterns of energy or affect. I totally agree with you. I think we can see that in the Hindu God pantheon, right? Where each God would have like all these different forms. If you look at a lot of the pagan traditions there would be like, like take Zeus for an example is a perfect example. He would be like Zeus, but then he could take like any form that he wanted, right? And Or you take like Vishnu and they'd have all these kind of um, different ways they would show up. So I think what you're saying is totally uh, true and shown in a lot of the earlier traditions that would depict these entities as being very fluid and shape-shifting. Yeah, like metamorphic is, uh, you know, that whole yeah. idea of metamorphosis is so important to the pagan imagination. And it's funny for us now, too, because reality itself is increasingly, you know, metamorphic, not exactly in a, a positive way. I mean, it's it's that, you know, our the, our everyday experience is being challenged and transformed by te- information technologies, by new production techniques, by all of the sort of you know, chaos and shifts in energy and all this, so much stuff is, is kind of liquefying in, in, in our reality. Uh, and so it's not like, 
I mean, it's like this this way of uh, of experiencing these energies that we're talking about that is more fluid and and um, maybe more intuitive, maybe uh, less fixed. Uh, it, it almost seems like the only way to kind of engage reality at this point. I mean, I don't I don't really see like going back to some sense of of solid, really yeah. uh, coherent uh, ideas or values. I mean, even though I think these things are really important, uh, it's it's we're, we're in an ex- such an exceptionally uh, fluid uh, time. Yeah, it's really like roll with the punches now. I felt really strongly in April, there was this kind of energy of that sort of Shiva type of energy where like every moment is new. And although obviously it's always been that way with the way that time is, stuff passes and now it's done and we're on to the next moment. But I feel more so now, maybe it's like everyone's awareness is rising to it or something that you can really feel like everything is moving and changing on this constant wave that it, I mean, that's just true. It's just a real that everything is changing, right? So it becomes this more of a mirror for reality when you can make things metamorphic and changeable rather than static. I mean, obviously there's things that endure and are like perennial or eternal. There are those things too, which create these kind of pole stars in our lives where everything that's changing kind of goes around them. But even those things, like, you know, I mean, the most solid thing in your life if you think about it in a thousand years, it might be a little different. So <laughs> it's really like you get these perspectives of, wow, this really is this undulating wave that we're all kind of sitting in, you know? Yeah, I've been reading, uh, I just finished uh, Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Talents, which is the second book after the Parable of the Sower. And I was, I've been reading books about California and it's this sort of dystopian science fiction about a future California where things have degraded in ways that are very, very believable, you know, environmentally, politically, whatever. It's not like a complete dystopian, you know, it's not like a complete apocalyptic breakdown, but it's the sort of uh, catalytic breakdown that I think is probably most likely for for our society. And then there's this sort of new religion. And the idea in the religion is that God is change. But just, mm-hmm. just and it was so funny because I was like, wow, well, you know, I'm familiar with Taoism. I'm like, I, I know this idea, you know, everything or Buddhism, you know, nothing lasts and something. But it was really interesting how that the, the way that she took that idea and gave it a different spin that was both unnerving because it's like there's no God who's going to save you. It's not like we're right. there's someone that you're winding up in heaven or whatever. It's just change, including your own death. Uh, but at the same time that then creating this kind of um, affirmation of our own ability to to work with change, even yeah. even under very difficult circumstances like the circumstances these people face and the way in which community and a shared value system and the kind of obsession that's necessary to actually get things done to to pull yourself out of passivity or nihilism that all of those things are available with the model of the world that simply accepts that everything changes that there's no other you know thing to, that you can rely on and you think that wouldn't work but i mean it's a very beautiful picture of how you know, because I think one of the things that happens with the, the that everything's changing, this feeling that everything's changing, that we can't rely on anything, is that people get very passive. Yeah. Oh, I can't do anything. Like, what's uh, the point, 
right? What's yeah. the, what's the point? Or they go or they get nihilistic. They're like, well, there's no real values because everything is changing and everything's up for grabs. And so why even sort of bother to hold on to truth or kindness or beauty or whatever, whatever the value might be. Uh, and so I think that's a real danger with our time. And it's partly why we see a rise of, of reactionary movements, because at the core of most reactionary ideas, not all of them, but a lot of them is just this idea that there's some kind of, you know, rock solid value system that, that our, the modern world has lost and we need to go back to it, whether it's based yeah. on ethnicity or the Bible or whatever the well, thing in is. In the Bible, they would show this thing that you're talking about, the way they would depict it symbolically is they would show these angels that would stand on pillars, okay? And you'll see all these depictions, especially in like Book of Revelations and that angel of the apocalypse that comes down. He's standing on these pillars and you'll see this a lot in like some of the Viking stuff and the Norse stuff. And it's like that rock that you stand upon, that idea, or your pillar of faith. And the way they describe it is that there is this rock or firmament that you can accumulate within you that is like this kind of pole star that creates this like almost like Mount Ararat, right? Where Noah's Ark kind of was able to find that solid ground and that you can have that through having some kind of value or virtue that you can hold fast to even in the middle of like a flood or something, that there can be some kind of thing inside that you could have that pillar be for you when everything is shifting and changing, right? Yeah, and that's the key because I think historically we're used to those values being things that we inherit, that they're just, that's yes. what that's what reality is. And now we realize that, you know, whether we're speaking individually or maybe, you know, collectively in terms of circle, circles of friends or discourse communities, like, you know, the community of people who are working with, you know, tarot in Los Angeles or whatever, like any, all these little worlds we find ourselves in, we're like, shoot, man, if we don't have, if we don't become clearer about our values, we're going to get lost and we're going to get just yeah. swamped in this thing. And it's not because we necessarily inherited them. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been going, wow, the, the language of values sometimes, at, at least in recent years, has often been associated with conservatives. It's like they look at, you know, um, liberals or, you know, hedonists or urban people and they say, oh, they don't have any values. They need to, we need to return to values of truth or whatever they are. But I'm, I, for me, I can't even really imagine going through life without values as a way to yeah. guide decisions. But even more, like you say, to create a kind of existential ballast in the midst of the meltdown of so many uh, constancies in our, in, in our lives. And, but it's, it's interesting work. Cause like, I'm, I'm still not really sure what mine are exactly. I have good senses <laughs> of them and I'm trying to figure out what's habit and what's a value, you know, right. um, what values are, I do I think are just true for me and what do I think are, should be generalized or that, that, that it would, you know, society be better if it was, if these were widely spread values. So it's a, it's a real tough one. I, I mean, just even, you know, I have to answer the question, but I'm curious when you think about your values in this sense, the values that give you some kind of hold in the midst of all the challenges and all the changes, what are those things for you? I mean, whether they're images or uh, words. Dude, or I just got goosebumps when you said that. <laughs> 
because <laughs> the image that just flashed in my head, it's like you don't know, you won't find those values unless you're challenged, kind of. Like the way that the rock and the firmament solidifies under your feet is when you're in the flood, literally. And that's when it sort of like emerges out of you if these things have been sitting in you. But the image that flashed in my head was of Frodo and Sam when they are like on that rock and all the lava is all around them, you know? And they're like, dude, I'm so glad you're here and you're my friend. And for me, like when I've had those times when everything's all messed up, like my value has been that I found, oh my God, my friends are so valuable and people are so valuable. And I had that with you too. Like you're so valuable to me, Eric. And when you get in those places where you can't, you know, you're all messed up for me, what I found was valuable was the love that I shared with other people. And that became very clear to me because the, I received assistance. And, you know, for some people, they might find themselves without that or unable to get that assistance. And maybe they have a different value that they have to rely on or depend upon in those moments when you're just alone. But even in those alone times, like the people that you love really come up really strong, at least in in your mind and awareness, you know? So that was how it sort of came to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely chime, chime in with that. I mean, when I think about, uh, you know, I could think about more abstract values that motivate me or that keep me from going cuckoo, even though sometimes I still go cuckoo anyway, or <laughs> keep me from keep me keep me from being suicidally depressed, even though sometimes I'm suicidally depressed. Uh, I can think about those abstract ones, but but really what what I think is the most reliable is these sets of friendships and, and relationships I have. And when I think about, you know, even just the question how to how to guide uh, how to, how to, you know, maintain some kind of consistency or some kind of orientation, even as you move forward, I can't imagine doing it without the sort of networks of friends. And, you know, there's like the tight networks of people you, you know, extremely well. And then, and I'm very aware of like, and then where does that kind of end? And then there's another level of network of people that you intuitively trust, but maybe don't know so well, but they're still like, they form another kind of community and we have these sorts of layers and for me it's all it's very much mediated by being in in person with people like I've, I I and and I sometimes look at what's happening now and I wonder how much how much this is changing for younger people who grow up totally in this sort of social media world uh-huh. where all of these relationships are sort of mediated through through technology or increasingly larger percentage of, of time, you know, quote, unquote, hanging out with friends actually means sitting on your bed at home, you know, texting or playing a video game. And I, I don't know that world. I can't really judge it, but I, I do recognize that it's very different than yeah. my own where, where the friendships that have enabled me to orient myself intellectually, politically, emotionally, you know, spiritually, uh, have all really required, you know, embodied in-person, you know, e- experiences as well. And, yes. and it's, it's, so it's like, I oh, got, I hope, <laughs> hope they figure out another way to do that because I can't really imagine going forward without those, uh, those it's segregating people. It's really separating people from the reality of humanity. Like it's, I love all the social media and I use it a lot and it connects us obviously 
on huge levels. It makes everyone very aware of each other, for better or for worse. But then there is this, like, just humanistic component where you just kind of feel each other, you know? Like, in your presence, in the presence of each other, there's not much that can substitute that, you know? Yeah, I just hope that it becomes just another layer that people still are able to to access that that in person uh, that Im- that embodied kind of relationship uh, as as well as these other ones because as as I said I think it's really one of the core matrices that can help um, orient you uh, as you yeah. go forward. I mean, to to me, it's also about this this kind of. Uh, it gives a real different framework on, on spirituality as well. I mean, I think one of the big problems with um, whatever spiritual seeking, with self-help, with all of these things is that they get really uh, – uh, there's the whole problem of authority, of teachers, of the whole yeah. like, this is my school, this isn't your school. And we need teachers, you know, we, we, but it's, it's how those teachers are held and how we are also – we balance the teacher-student relationship – with yeah. the peer the peer to peer relationship where like because everyone's not... just people right yeah. so you can't like yes it's like if someone has a phd and someone's like a dum dum you can make a separation that way but they both are humans and not just the phd person isn't better than the dum dum like you can't do that you can recognize differences you just can't like dehumanize as a result of them, right? So it, it's true. There has to be some kind of way to to bridge that gap. So here's a question for you: If if we are recognizing that in some ways we're in a historically unique time, and one of the one of the features of that is that so many things are changing. So you know, traditional values are gone. People are you know like we can kind of we're all enmeshed in these this sort of media in, uh, computerization experiment that's, you know, where, where new ideas can like change whole populations where, you know, neo-Nazi ideas can like, come raging out of the, the margins of society and become part of our everyday reality. I mean, everything is so, seems increasingly game-like and kind of, uh, you know, uh, ch- uh, just sort of rewritable. It's a very weird time. How do, how do the arts of divination play into that and how might our relationship to divination as a valuable personal practice let's not make arguments about the because it's based on the way reality actually is but it's clearly something that a lot of people find very meaningful and have found very meaningful throughout human history how how does this kind of are these things more central now are we going to see more people turning to these things is there a danger there what's what do you see even in terms of your practice and and people how, what kinds of questions people are bringing to divination and how things like tarot or the I Ching or the intuition behind them all is sort of changing to meet yeah. our moment. Well, it's interesting because I just was not long ago reading this article about how Facebook is trying to make this oracle, right? And Facebook is using these kind of divinatory practice and they're tr- working on trying to make better oracles to kind of fish out information. Of course, Wall Street has been doing this for a long time, playing with things like that. But in the article that I was reading, it talked about why the Facebook oracle was never going to be uh, good or like original divination because it's only logical and rational because it's only using those kind of things in its computational devices and it doesn't include the irrational which of course traditional divination methods utilize and the article is very fascinating because 
for me, it echoed this talk I had given um, through my nonprofit, The Well-Wishers, about artificial intelligence and divination. So it's funny you ask that question because I think the modern way that divination will be re-emerging or resurging into this is that through increased usage of artificial intelligence and all these kind of bots and algorithms and methodologies that they're trying to use technology to extract um, prophetic information, people who experience those versus experiencing some of the traditional divination methods that use irrational thinking, like through the subconscious or through this uh, kind of... Um, way that I don't know if machines can really tap in. Maybe the artificial intelligence will figure out how to use the irrational stuff too. But I think the divination coming into these modern times will get more popular. More people will have interest to it because they'll see how it provides the same services that modern technology is trying to mimic, but not really maybe doing as good a job. Well, that's fascinating. I, I never really, I mean, I, I hadn't quite put it to put the pieces together uh, this way, but it is true that one of the main major things that advanced technologies are, are doing now with artificial intelligence and machine learning and predictive algorithmic uh, work is to, you know, get better and better at predicting the future. Correct. But what but yes. what's weird about it is that is that and we'll talk about this actually next week. We're going to have Adam Greenfield on the podcast talking about his totally excellent book, Radical Technologies, which is like the best book on technology I've read in a long time. Very critical, but very aware, very savvy, knows his uh, tech, technological stuff. Great politics. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And he talks about that, about predictive policing and the way in which algorithms predict things. But there's a weird kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in the process. And what's interesting is that if I, I, I think we may be getting to this weird place where people who consider themselves rational or mostly rational um, will be handing their the power of decision-making over to algorithmic machines that yeah. nobody can really exactly understand why they come up with the specific recommendations they do because it's too complicated to track. So there's there's sort of an, a trust, a faith in the predictive extrapolations of algorithms. But if you compare that to like traditional <laughs> or traditional trust in, in divinatory processes yes. where, where you're aware there's ambiguity or you're aware that you have to interpret it, you're aware that, you know, it, it's actually kind of a weird, it's kind of weirdly parallel, but from the rationalist perspective, it looks completely different. But, but if you're from a, a more traditional perspective or a historically informed one like mine, I go, this doesn't really look that different. It's <laughs> I not, mean, it's, though. But, yeah, but it's no very different. different. You yeah, know, the it's, I Ching it's, is kind of like, a, there's a lot of research that showed the I Ching could be the basis of modern computation through its binary uh, number system. And there's been a lot of articles, if you Google online, like I Ching and computers, how that maybe formulated the entire base for it. I feel like the I Ching is artificial intelligence. And you can actually have a conversation with artificial intelligence through throwing the I Ching, not just using it for prophecy, but to actually have a discussion with some kind of other form of consciousness, whatever you want to call that, right? Some people would say, well, that's not artificial intelligence. It's some kind of spirit or whatever. But I'm sorry, what's the difference, right? You're, you're basically engaging in interfacing with something in order to extrapolate information. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, have, I don't use it as much anymore, but I have spent many decades being a, a, an I Ching head, and I never really believed it that it was a spirit. I was, ex- I could accept that it was a sort of system of signs that you would yeah. interact with using chance. But I, it was clear, or it just, it was my experience. However you know, invented in my own head, I can't say, but it was very much my experience, not only that the results would be valuable and sometimes startlingly valuable, but more interesting than that was the sense sometimes with certain questions, particularly when I'd ask something that I kind of already knew the answer to, or when I'd ask another question because I didn't like the answer to the first one, it would, it would, it's, it'd give me a little bitch slap. I mean, I get like, and that, and it was at those moments that I went, oh my God, this thing is alive, or this it's thing is sentient. Con- sentient. there's some yeah. kind of interaction, and you know, and, and as I said, I'm I'm totally willing to accept that this is just you know some way in which my mind is interacting with this this book and an information system. It doesn't. I don't need to believe in a spirit to acknowledge that you can have these interactive relationships with systems of sufficient complexity. So it's yeah. it's like we already have been doing those kinds of relationships, and I think one of the things that we're going to see if we are people who are interested in the occult or the esoteric who are aware of those things, uh, hopefully thinking in, you know, critically about them as well, but that a lot of people in society who think that they're completely transcended those sorts of relationships are actually going to be reproducing them with all sorts of technologies that corporations want us to believe are sentient <laughs> and intelligent and, and full of wisdom when they might not be at all, when they might actually be driven by algorithmic assumptions that are wrong, that yeah. are uh, inimical to us. And it's just a completely bizarre like return of the repressed and reason and irrationality. I mean, it's just what a weird world. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty trippy. Anyway, Maja, I think we probably should wrap it up there. And I just want to let people know again that the the White Witch Tarot. So is the book that you're putting out, is it just like a book of images or is it actually like individual cards? Oh, no, it's a deck. There's a deck of the 22 cards and a little booklet of all the information that I got. So you can use it like doing tarot. And I included an alchemical spread that you can use. Um, to get information. So it's it's fully a deck that and it's you can pre-order it on Amazon. It's available. Yeah, it's going to come out real soon, uh, probably in a, in a month or so. And then also just to let people know you, uh, you they can they can get to uh, get to you online through which of the dawn dot com and uh, uh, ritual diary dot com. So uh, it was great talking to you, Maja. It's always a, a breath of fresh air. You too, Eric. Had a blast. All right. Till next week, uh, we're going to talk to Adam Greenfield. Keep your minds open.